God Bless Canada, the in-house podcast of the McDonald Laurier Institute. I'm Aaron Woodrick, the MLI's Director of Domestic Policy, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Sean Watley, who's an MLI Monk Senior Fellow and a practicing family physician, and Dr. Martha Fulford, an infectious disease specialist and associate professor of medicine at McMaster University, to talk about a very hot topic, vaccinations, and more specifically than just vaccinations, vaccination passports and mandates, what they are and whether or not they're a good idea. So welcome to you both, Dr. Watley and Dr. Fulford. I thought we'd just start with something very simple because I think in the public discourse, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports are are sort of used interchangeably. Uh, I'm wondering maybe if uh, perhaps Dr. Fulford, you could sort of explain what is the difference between these two things? How, How are they distinct from one another? Very good question, because of course, both of these are are new concepts. When we think of vaccines pre-COVID, we had three categories, which were required vaccinations for things like going to school, recommended vaccinations for certain types of risks, for example, rabies for people who work a lot with animals. And then there were two kind of required or mandatory uh, vaccines. And that was yellow fever for people usually traveling from a yellow fever zone to a non-yellow fever zone. And then specifically for people going on the Hajj pilgrimage, they would require a meningococcal vaccine in order to enter Saudi Arabia. So I think when we think passport, that was probably, I think the best analogy are the yellow fever and the meningococcal, which were entry requirements for certain countries. But that was to enter the country. And then within the country, there would be no further requirement. Nobody would ever check. What's happening now, this conversation around COVID, of course, is this issue of having to show proof of having been vaccinated in order to access normal activities and and participate in normal public life. And this is a very new and, quite frankly, somewhat unprecedented uh, endeavor. For schools, we have in the past uh, had a certain number of vaccines that children were supposed to have, and it was strongly encouraged. And these were the vaccine-preventable diseases that cause a significant morbidity and mortality in children, but certainly always with the provision of an exemption. And so, again, that was a very specific requirement for children. At the moment, the language is very interchangeable and I think very imprecise. And my sense when I speak to people that a lot of people don't quite actually understand what is being asked or what the implications are or even what the results will be. And is it fair to say that when we think of a passport, we're sort of talking about something that we normally think of in terms of traveling to another country, but this would be to sort of access things, right? You want to go to a restaurant, you want to go to a bar, you want to go to a gym, you have to show that you have this vaccination as compared to a mandate, which would be say you work in an environment. And so you just, you you were required to get it as a condition of employment. And once you've got it, nobody's sort of checking up on you all day long. In other words, there's a difference between these two things, but they are sort of being muddled right now in terms of the public discussion. Very muddled. So yeah, so so it's fair comment. So in the healthcare sector, which is clearly, again, a very specific environment, we do, in fact, show that we are immune against measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, that we've got a hepatitis B immunity. Most of us either have a negative TB skin test or clear x-rays, but that's a, a one-off thing. We don't then, I don't have to show my proof of vaccination every time I walk into the hospital. It's also fundamentally different in terms of very specific job requirement than having to show health status to access normal activities. And and this is something that for Canadians anyway, why I don't know internationally if there's any precedent for this, that it really is a change in terms of our normal thoughts in terms of freedom of movement and freedom of assembly. I mean, I'm certainly not a, a constitutional lawyer, but it's very different, say, to be able to go into a restaurant, but you can't actually access the restaurant unless you can show this 
piece of health information, which under normal circumstances would be considered highly confidential. Yeah. And so I think you've already answered what was going to be my next question, which is when people point to things like those existing requirements, things we've had for a long time and saying, well, what makes this different? The answer is the sort of ongoing obligation to constantly show your status to do sort of everyday things. That's the big difference here. It is. Yes. And also there's a confidentiality issue because even for work, our health records are kept by employee health and it's private. And there are people who may not have ha- mounted an immune response to hepatitis B. It doesn't mean that we, we don't let them work. We don't ostracize them. We don't say they can't do it. It's just a documentation of, of where we're at. It also helps us understand in terms of infection control or possible exposures, what kind of measures we need to take to protect uh, our healthcare workers. But it's a bit of an odd thought for me that I would have to show a waiter, my health status. And what if I've got a medical inter- uh, contraindication? I've explained what my medical contraindication is. I think there's there are a lot of questions to be asked about this. And any kind of a process which requires the daily showing of, of a piece of health information should be very thoughtful and it should have really clear objectives and ways of measuring and endpoints. I don't have a really good sense for, for the places that have put in these these so-called sort of vaccine certificate requirements is what the goal is. It just occurred to me too that when you mentioned the importance of sort of privacy around your health status, that's the reason why, as anyone has been to the liquor store in Ontario will know, you can't show your health card as proof of ID. The rationale behind all of that was, well, we don't want people to have to show their, even their health card. If up until now it has just been accepted that, you know, showing your health card would be an inappropriate violation of your sort of health privacy, um, yet now we're thinking about, and Ontario indeed has announced that they're going to require people to reveal their status on an ongoing basis just to go into a restaurant. Maybe we could sort of talk to you, Dr. Watley, about sort of the formulation of how we got here. How did we get to this point where we are talking about a pretty unprecedented way to try and tackle COVID. Obviously, you know, we're a year and a half in and things have changed. Ontario in particular, where we all are, has a very high rate of vaccination uptake. And yet there's a lot of public popularity around the idea of restricting what unvaccinated people can do. What do you think's behind that? And, you know, where do you think we're going with this? Yeah, so fantastic, Aaron. You've given me about four different paths I could go down. I love that kind of question. That's a perfect question. So I I think I'll just throw out one comment. We could circle back to it later. Uh, Good policy is really hard to make. So it's really, really hard. Even simple policy like admissions criteria for your local lawn bowling club, it can be really hard to pin that down. And the bigger your group gets, you talk about a large hospital, now you're talking about 15 million people in a province or, you know, almost 38 million people in the country. Good policy is really hard to make, and we can sort of tackle that a little bit later. But you you use the word unprecedented. And, you know, there's only a certain kind of people that would see the discussion we're having right now as anything more than, you know, academic at best. For a large segment of the population, and this is true all throughout human history, they see no trouble at all with telling other people what to do. So it's only people that hold to at least these three fundamental ideas. Number one, the autonomy of the individual. So in medicine, sort of, cons- you can't do anything without consent, right? Unless the person is, you know, unconscious and dying. But patient autonomy is sacrosanct. And Dr. Fulford already mentioned the next one. I was going to say freedom of movement. We presuppose freedom of movement is generally a good thing, as long as there isn't a toxic waste dump or something that you know you should avoid. So 
autonomy, freedom of movement. And then this third idea that I was thinking about is the idea that government is there to protect our freedoms, not to create our freedoms and to steal a line you know, from the Declaration of Independence. I know it's American, but this concept of inalienable rights life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, versus the government just saying, oh, we're going to create a right of freedom or create a right of free speech or conscience or whatever. And so it's only people that hold to those three ideas that I mentioned, sort of autonomy, freedom of movement, and the fact that government is there to protect your rights. We actually find that there's tension between vaccine mandates and our presuppositions. But if you're not the sort of person who holds those presuppositions, then, hey, we've got a problem. Not a, not, we don't have 100% vaccination rates. Just pass a law, make a policy. It's very straightforward for them. And so that often gets lost in this conversation. You'll be 20 minutes into a discussion and then you realize, oh my gosh, we're not even talking about mandates here. We're talking about fundamental views of how society should be arranged so that humans can flourish. And that often gets lost. So I'll throw that out there, but I'm happy to go down the policy creation trail too. It's very interesting that you point that out because I think, unfortunately, the fact that we're having this discussion about the desirability of vaccine passports and mandates to some people would be evidence that we're against vaccinations or we don't believe the science. And I like I want to be clear. I mean, I, I'm double vaccinated. I would love if everyone would get vaccinated. But I think there's a distinction between what I want and what I believe and forcing other people to do it. I think that's the distinction. And I think, you know, for people who are listening who may not understand why there's an objection, I just just because you think something is good, there's a very big difference between that and believing you should essentially be able to force other people to do it. And I think that's really what this debate is about. You know, in terms of how we got here, people will be familiar with the term moral panic and the idea that a lot of what we're doing now is less grounded in science and more grounded in just uh, just a sort of unmoored fear about things. And there seems to me to be a belief certainly among some people anyway, that if we have, uh, you know, vaccine passports, what that's going to do is it's going to create these places where there's no virus. And that's good because that means the people who are vaccinated can go in there and not worry about things and it will be safe. And it seems to me that seems to be the overwhelming motive for most people supporting these things. So maybe go back to you first, Dr. Fulford. Is that what these would do? If we have a vaccine passport, would it create safer spaces for people where they'd be at less risk? Again, a very good question, which actually we have no idea. But I, well, because nobody's actually studied this. I mean, these policies, these requirements were even put in the absence actually of any data that they'll make any difference. But what I will say about the vaccines, the vaccines have been dramatically effective at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, death in the people who are most vulnerable to that, which we, I think we all know by now that the people who are most likely to, to have an adverse outcome if they get COVID are older adults and adults, again, with specific comorbidities, things like obesity, poorly controlled diabetes, poorly controlled hypertension, the so-called sort of metabolic syndromes. And anybody you know, can look up these numbers that by far and away, the biggest and most significant risk factor for bad outcome is age. Not to say that younger people don't get COVID. Obviously, anybody from any age can acquire COVID, but children and adolescents and young adults have very good outcomes. They may be entirely asymptomatic. In other words, it is so mild in this cohort that they have no symptoms, or essentially they have an upper respiratory tract infection. Not to say that a young person may never have a bad outcome, but it's exceedingly rare and, and comparable to 
most other respiratory virus, well, things like influenza in young people, it's different in adults. So getting back to the vaccine question, they prevent severe disease, hospitalization, death. What they don't do is stop COVID. And so a vaccinated person can still get COVID, will still test positive. The difference is that by virtue of being vaccinated, our bodies already have you know, antibodies and the response or the illness will be very likely mild. And so the vaccines don't, aren't going to create a vaccine-free world. What they're going to create is a, you know, a significant reduction in severe morbidity and mortality. And I think this isn't really, really very much appreciated. So this thought that somehow we're going to have virus-free zones is, is not correct. To be fair, I think if people are vaccinated, they probably shed virus a lot for a shorter period of time. So we probably will have we probably will have less transmission. Though again, this hasn't actually been shown. And ironically, uh, doing this may you know there may be inadvertent consequences. And one of the inadvertent consequences may be increased transmission. And the reason I say that is we may actually be polarizing people. So you have people who are simply not going to get vaccinated now socializing together in groups. So you have increased transmission in those groups. And then we have vaccinated people who somehow think, oh, we're all vaccinated. This is safe and transmitting it among themselves. And so this is why when something like this is, is put in place, it is so important to have a really clearly articulated objective. What is the point or what is the rationale for requiring this? How are we gonna monitor this and what is the end point? Because if people are expecting a virus-free like it's somehow going to make it go away, that that's never going to happen. And we've already seen in other jurisdictions that had so-called vaccine passports, for example, Israel had the green card and that they, they were using it. Well, it didn't work in terms of stopping any further transmission. And people have all sorts of reasons for this, but it's just a tool. And it's a tool that at this point, we're not entirely sure. I haven't seen articulated from public health what the end point is. I think clearly one of the objectives is to try to get more people just across the board of all age groups vaccinated, whether that you call it inducement or coercion, I think depends on, you know, where, where along the spectrum one stands. Will this change, you know, the actual sort of networks of transmission and will it change disease burden to our hospitals? I don't know that we know that because maybe it will make every 20 year old get vaccinated or, you know, all young adults. But that's not the population that is having the impact on the healthcare system necessarily. And if our networks of transmission, where we're seeing a lot of transmission, are in groups that are unvaccinated for other reasons, either they are don't speak English, there may be literacy issues, there may be access issues, there may be significant distrust of the healthcare system because of both personal and historic experiences, because certainly there have there's a lot of history of that. So we may not actually help that group. Maybe they weren't going to go to a gym or a restaurant anyway. And so if we haven't gone and approached that group and tried to figure out why they're not being vaccinated, then those networks of transmission may not be interrupted. And then the disease burden that affects our hospitals may not be interrupted. Now, they may work. They may not. I'm just, I haven't actually seen something that shows what the end result will, of all of this will be. And the other question I have is, here we're mandating or we're requiring people to show vaccination status. 
in most of Europe, it's actually an immunity passport, if you want to call it that. So they will accept proof of vaccination. They will accept a, a recent negative test, but they also accept recovered from COVID because there are good studies uh, that show that if you get COVID, you do in fact get immunity. Now, I'm not suggesting we should just let everybody get COVID, but for the people who've already had COVID and recovered, it is unclear whether they actually need to be vaccinated uh, and whether that will make any difference, you know, may help their immunity. But again, it, it seems actually to me rather unscientific to say it's a vaccine passport as opposed to an immunity passport. So I think there are a lot of questions uh, about what we think this is going to do, but what has to be made very clear, what it is not going to do is stop the virus and stop all virus transmission. Speaking of good policy and the making of good policy, you mentioned that earlier, Dr. Watley. So maybe I'll, I'll sort of put it to you. Dr. Fulford mentioned that one of the rationales for this, I mean, aside from the idea that we'll, we'll sort of, we'll keep the potentially dangerous people out of certain places is as an inducement, as an incentive to get vaccinated. So what do you say to that? If, if the, the objective here is actually it's not so much about excluding people from places. It's about providing them with a strong incentive to go and get vaccinated. Does that make it good policy? Yeah, so great question. I'm glad you linked it to what Dr. Fulford said about a goal. There's a fantastic article, actually, New England Journal of Medicine. And for your listeners who uh, maybe don't know, New England Journal is sort of world famous premier journal, October 2020. And the authors are Melo, Silverman and Omer. But they, they offer a set of guidelines for what we should be thinking through even before we start drafting policy. And so uh, they suggest five things, and I'll just go over them very, very quickly. I'm paraphrasing. Number one, it should be that we've failed to control COVID. Number two, there's scientific support for what we're going to do. Number three, uh, the public trusts the process. Number four, there's access to care and access to adverse, you know, care for adverse event. And then number five, we should give a time period uh, or a short time for voluntary process to, to work out. So just circling back sort of number one, we shouldn't be pursuing mandates unless we can demonstrate that we have failed. So failure defined as increasing hospitalization rates and increasing death from COVID. If you haven't passed that filter, then why are you? What are you doing? To Dr. Fulford's point, what is your goal exactly? Where are you going with this? So, if you can demonstrate that, wow, we have lots of deaths and our hospitals are overwhelmed. Okay, so that's step one. Check. Maybe we do need a mandate. Then number two, you'd want to look at where is the scientific literature right now. So, for example, just at the end of August, we saw the Joint Commission on Vaccines and Immunizations out of the UK come out and say the benefits do not outweigh the risk for patients under the age of 18 for the uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccinations. And so uh, it would be ideal if we could point to a group or multiple groups of leading authorities uh, in the science to say, yeah, there seems to be general agreement on the direction we're going. So that's filter number three, two. Filter number three, and it's connected to that, is the safety and efficacy of the vaccines need to be presented and available in a clear and transparent way. So you talk about coercion versus incentives versus trying to get people on board. I mean, we have to have public trust. If we haven't got the public on side by showing 
what we know in a clear and transparent way, including the unattractive parts, the failures, the adverse rates, and the adverse events in all of their nitty-gritty detail, we will not have public trust. And so you can write the best policy in the world and you won't be able to get it through. Number four, we need to make sure there's access to vaccination. I think some communities still struggle, whether it's geographical barriers or uh, socioeconomic barriers. Less of an issue in Canada now, but certainly in, in many parts of the world, that's an issue. But with that, there needs to be access to care for those rare adverse events. I mean, even if you need a couple of days off work, you can't mandate for everybody to go get vaccination and then say, well, you're on your own if you're off work all weekend or, or for a week or whatever. I mean, these are rare problems, but even more rare are the serious adverse events. We need to tell people that no matter what, you are covered. You have a pension for life or whatever is necessary. And I'm not sure the I haven't seen a loud and clear expression of that from people who are calling for the vaccine or you know, the mandates. And then finally, we should have a time-limited trial of voluntary uptake, especially in our highest priority groups. And the fact that we're approaching 100% vaccination rates in the over 90-year-old cohort suggests that perhaps the voluntary uptake has been extremely good. And so unless we're hitting all five of those criteria, failure to control, scientific support, trust, access to, to the vaccine and care for adverse events, and as well as the failure of a voluntary trial, then I would say, why are you even progressing to creating policy? And, and so we could get into what goes into good policy later, but that's sort of a long answer to, will a mandate create an incentive for people who don't want this? I think coercion never works as well as cooperation. My patients who are the most resistant or vaccine hesitant do not respond when I take a heavy hand with them. They respond when I dig in and say, tell me, why are you scared? What's going on here? How can we work through this? And we have to, at the same time, be cautious. Dr. Fulford alluded to this about the creation of perverse incentives. If we take a heavy hand on one vaccine, they might reject all of the other vaccines, or they might fuel a movement of radicalism that didn't ever need to exist in the first place. So these are issues we need to pack, you know, work through before we even put pen to paper in creating policy. And then we can talk about what actually goes into the policy later if you're interested. It's interesting that you point out that there's an element of potential backfire here, right? That if the real goal of these rules is to encourage people to get vaccinated, it may backfire badly. And then we have a much bigger, longer term problem that goes beyond people not getting vaccinated for COVID. You have you know, further distrust of, of our institutions. You have vaccination skepticism that, that will apply to other vaccines. So I do think that people are just sort of assuming that the incentive will be strong enough to change people's minds. And, and again, I don't know that we have a lot of evidence for that. Now, you know, I think it's fair to say those of us having this discussion on this podcast are probably a little more concerned about the lack of weighing the trade-offs for this sort of really unprecedented step. But I wanted to sort of put a hypothetical to you both. If everyone could agree that we wanted to do something, we wanted to do some kind of mandate or passport, how could we shape it in a way that would be minimally impairing of rights. So in other words, sort of what are the absolute most important things it should apply to? Just throwing out there an example would be, you know, people who work in certain environments where they're high-risk people. And, and what exemptions would be appropriate? Accepting that this would be a violation of people's freedoms. How could we shape such a policy regime in a way that would minimally impair people's rights and freedoms? So I'm going to go back to, of course, is before you even have this conversation, is what, what are we trying to 
you know, what's the end point? So at the healthcare system, the asking us to minimize the risk to our patients is actually eminently reasonable. And I've never had a problem with that for any infectious disease as a healthcare professional. It is my job to ensure that I do not put my patients at risk to the best of my ability. And obviously, as an infectious disease physician, I'm very pro-vaccine in general. Unfortunately, with COVID vaccine, what we don't necessarily prevent is transmission because people can still shed, though, albeit we think it's for a short period of time. So I think if I was going to take a step back and think, okay, what do we need to do? I'm not uncomfortable asking healthcare professionals to be vaccinated, but for the people who don't wish to be or who have a medical contraindication, there are any other number of alternatives that could be done. And quite frankly, possibly more effective would be, for for example, rapid antigen tests. Uh, We're not really using these in Ontario, though they're used in some uh, jurisdictions. And that's, these are particularly effective when people are symptomatic. And and that would actually catch people who might be shedding virus who are vaccinated or unvaccinated. Now, you obviously can't do this across the general population, but you could certainly do this in high-risk environments. There are a lot of jurisdictions that have done this, for example, twice a week before people going into high-risk work environments. And it does, you know, when as soon as people are symptomatic, they're flagged and they're immediately required to, to quarantine at home. I probably would have said, I think what we need is, I personally would have gone for a, an immunity system. I do think that we are there is something odd about not recognizing natural immunity. This is something that's new to me this last year, that for some reason with COVID in particular, we're not acknowledging that people who get COVID and recover do also have antibodies. And the most recent study, it's a preprint still, but you know, out of Israel, is actually showing that if anything, natural immunity may confer slightly better protection than, than being vaccinated. Again, not to say that everybody should just get COVID, but acknowledge that if people have recovered, that that should count. And so then you think of an immunity passport so that you're decreasing the risk of transmission and you target it. For me, the most effective way of doing it is where do we see the transmission happening? So so those are those, you know, transmission networks where we start to see it. And so quite frankly, we already know it was certain high-risk workplaces, it's certain congregate care settings. Go into those places and go to the, the people who live there and try to figure out if they're not vaccinated, what the barriers are. But also, quite frankly, it was a lot of the people who had all those essential jobs who are living on the borderline, this, you know, so, so people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. A lot of people didn't have the luxury of staying home and isolating and, and you know, working online and having stuff delivered to their homes. And so I, I think we could have a much more targeted uh, approach to this. I'm not sure if I'm really sort of answering your question, but, you know, broad brush interventions in areas that maybe we weren't seeing a lot of high transmission in low risk people isn't really probably where I would have targeted. I would have gone, OK, where did we see the transmission? And so for the people who, who need new work, for the high-risk warehouses, for the high-risk places like the food distribution plants, clearly those aren't going to close down. Look at twice-weekly rapid antigen testing. And that's not mandating a vaccine for people who are reluctant. It's not really making a decision on who's immune and who's not immune. What it's looking at is who might be actually shedding virus in enough quantities that, that there might be a risk of transmission. So I think there are a lot of nuances. And this is coming from a very pro-vaccine person, because this particular vaccine isn't necessarily going to stop transmission, but rather it's going to stop severe disease. I, I would have probably done what Dr. Watley was saying and what Sean was saying and had a, a much more careful look at exactly what it is we are trying to achieve 
and then if this is going to achieve it or whether there's other ways. There's another observation I'll make. It might be off topic. We can come back to that. But there's some fairly ugly um, divisions happening in our society, very intolerant and, and very unpleasant comments being made towards the so-called unvaxxed, as if this is sort of some homogenous, dirty group of people. It is a very unkind and, and not a very attractive aspect of our society that's coming to the fore. The unvaxxed, so-called, are not a, some strange you know, homogenous group of people. There are many, many reasons people haven't been vaccinated. I worry about doing this as well and, and not acknowledging all the complexities of our society. It's creating some divisions and some us versus them attitudes that I think are unnecessary and not helpful and aren't actually going to change the outcome of COVID. I agree entirely. And I actually think what we see here is the people who are looking down at the unvaccinated, I think they have an image in their mind of a certain type of person, probably an angry white male who maybe supports Donald Trump and, and reads uh, you know conspiracy theories online. When in reality, a lot of the people who are not getting vaccinated may be the people that avoid genetically modified foods. They may be from immigrant communities that come from countries where there's not a lot of trust in government. There may be language issues, so they don't understand. You think of First Nations who have plenty of reason to not trust government in this country. So I think once you point out that there are many different reasons that people might get want to get vaccinated or to be afraid to get vaccinated, it's a lot more complex than a bunch of angry people. Also, there are groups of people who I think have also had some very bad uh, historical as well as current experiences of the healthcare system. And that also leads to distrust. You know, we have to be honest, this has happened. Hopefully we, you know, we're learning and we're, we're improving, but it's not hard to find stories of people who have experienced significant, whether it be ethnic or racial bias within the healthcare system, who have not had good healthcare. And then this perception that then now almost being coerced into something further erodes that trust. It's a complicated conversation. And while I completely support the endeavor to try to get as many vulnerable adults vaccinated as possible, I just, I worry that mandates and certificates and, and excluding people from certain parts of society may not be the kindest and most successful way of achieving whatever that objective is. It, the response most people have had to your, to your latter point, Dr. Fulfer, was, well, we've used carrots a lot, and so now we should get the stick out. And I think the response to that is, well, what if the stick doesn't work? Then it's going to be a lot harder to ever use carrots again in the future. So maybe the answer is, yeah, it's frustrating that the carrots don't work, but we need to keep finding carrots because the stick, there's a lot of evidence to support the proof that the stick is not going to work, even if you want it to. Coercion, stigma, naming, blaming, shaming have never, ever historically been effective public health measures. So I, I was going to jump in there and say that there's a great article as well from uh, June, uh, sort of reviewing where does public support lie on this. And there seems to be broad-based public support for international travel. So vaccine passports for international travel. So if you wanted to start somewhere, um, you could say, well, this seems to be where most people show support. Building on that, you still need to actually come up with a policy. And so at, at very at the minimum, you need to be very clear, what is the goal? What is the purpose of our policy? You need to have a solid background and justification for your policy. 
and I those speaks to the five issues I mentioned earlier. Then you have to lay out how are you going to actually implement this policy? What are the costs? What are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the expected challenges we're going to run into? You know, maybe people, if, if it's all on their iPhones, well, what about the people who don't have iPhones? Or what about the people who can't, can't remember, you know, where they left their yellow card? There are all sorts of hiccups that you need to address. So it can make us feel good to say, yeah, we're going to have a, a mandate or a passport. But we have to work through all the, all the whatabouts and all the yeah buts as part of our policy creation process. And then built into our policy, we need to have a way to review what we're doing. How are we achieving our, you know, are we moving towards our goal? Are we actually achieving the purpose for which we created this policy in the first place? And built into all of this as well, at the end, we need to have an exit strategy or a sunset clause for our policy. Otherwise, the policy, it, it, it creates this new mark in the sand that lasts forever. And science isn't like that, especially viruses aren't like that. They're mutating and changing all the time and you get new variants. So, I just feel that jumping to a mandate, it, it sounds like a very simple solution to an actually quite a complex problem. Again, I, I feel bad that we all have to say we're pro-vaccine. I'm pro-vaccine. I'm double vaccinated. One of my physician colleagues actually bawled me out for saying that. He said, Sean, you shouldn't have to say that in our society. The fact that you have to say that shows that we have a bigger problem than just discussing vaccines. And I think that's what we're getting at in this discussion. But Despite my pro-vaccine stance, I think we need to take a breath and get this right and build into our policy creation process some way to know when we're falling off the rails. Who's going to check this? How are we going to modify it? How are we going to be flexible enough? Because really, we're talking about restricting freedom based on people's verifiable risk. Well, that's a new thing in society. We've never done that before, to Dr. Fulford's points about creating a, a two-tier society. That's been tried in other places throughout human history, and it doesn't always work out very well. So we need to be thoughtful. What is our goal? At maximizing the health status of every Canadian no matter where they're from, not just the people who want to do international travel, not just the people who want to win elections, and really doing this thoughtfully and, and doing it in such a way that we're able to change in advance as we learn more about this disease. Now, you've both mentioned, you know, it's all clear what the objective is. There's not really a sort of exit strategy laid out. So I'm wondering if you'd both agree that, you know, throughout this pandemic, there's been a lot of moving of the goalposts, right? I mean, I think early on, well, we sort of had to keep things shut down until we got vaccines. And then it was, well, we need to keep things shut down until we hit a certain threshold. And then in Ontario, I mean, which is very highly vaccinated jurisdiction relative to a lot of others. Now we're still talking about things like passports. And so I wonder if you see this just goalposts continuing to move, say they implement a, I mean, Ontario has announced a vaccine passport uh, recently. They implement this rate goes up, but it's still not quite, you know, now it's at 93 and people sort of say, well, so do you, do you sort of see the goalposts moving again, even after a vaccine passport is in place? Well, and this is actually one of the challenges uh, of this whole thing is we, we do need actually to have a conversation and an honest conversation what the exit strategy is. And unfortunately, there has been, though I, I notice it's kind of quieting down, but unfortunately, there was for a while this perception that we were somehow going to achieve something called COVID zero. Again, this is a very personal opinion, but I think it was a very dangerous thought because historically, we have never eradicated a respiratory tract virus. And if you look at the history of pandemics, 
pandemic viruses sweep through a population until you get a degree of herd immunity. And depending on what era in history that herd immunity is acquired via natural immunity or more recently a combination of natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity. But then these viruses become endemic. So for example, the H1N1 influenza pandemic of 2009, H1N1 is still with us every year, but it's now one of our normal respiratory sort of, you know, seasonal influenza viruses. So it's become what we call endemic. And so with COVID, unfortunately, we're kind of mixing around. And, and I think there's still a great number of people who somehow feel that it's going to go away or we're going to somehow achieve some magic zero. Whereas really the conversation is, at what point is it manageable? Because we're never going to achieve a state of zero hospitalizations and zero admissions. What we're going to achieve is a manageable or an equilibrium with it where it becomes the same as many of our seasonal viruses. And so, for example, if you look at Denmark, they have recently announced that as of uh, September 10th, which is the last day of their sort of you know, emergency, if you want to call it that, they're no longer going to renew it. And the rationale is that they're saying that COVID is no longer considered what they're describing as a socially critical disease. In other words, it is no longer, while it hasn't gone away and it's still going to wax and wane, it is no longer a huge threat that will overwhelm their system. And so that actually is the question is, when do we accept equilibrium? And this is why in Ontario recently, for example, uh, there was a change in reporting and the focus really should be on hospitalizations and, and deaths and not cases, because as we've been discussing, cases will continue. Vaccinated people can still test positive, but if it's a mild case in the community, that is just self-limited, then that is in fact the end point. And if the number of hospitalizations is controlled and it's something that our system can deal with, then that should be the end point. And we just haven't really articulated that very clearly. And the other challenge I would, I would say has been that we have put a huge amount of effort into a lot of these prevention measures. We've had lockdowns and restrictions and all sorts of things to try to stop transmission. But there are many points of pandemic management and an incredibly important one is also looking at hospital capacity because inevitably people will end up in hospital. And so in part of pandemic management is creating surge capacity and, and perhaps you know, we, I think we're all recognizing that we had no surge capacity when this hit us. If you go back to, you know, January of 2020, before COVID hit, there are many stories of hospitals and overwhelm, of long ER wait times, of hallway medicine. And so part of our endpoint, though I wouldn't want to delay opening up society for this, is what have we done so that we're not constantly 100, 110% capacity in our hospitals? One of the challenges we're having at our hospital is, is our nurses, they're burnt out. We should be looking at that end as well. I mean, it's a, it's the reality. People will be in hospital, hopefully at manageable levels, but are we looking at their working conditions? Have we improved their pay? Did we give them COVID pay the same way that the doctors got COVID pay? I think there are lots of things at other ends. That's so all along the spectrum that we could be discussing, but certainly in Canada, I haven't seen much conversation about an end point. And the problem is that a lot of it seems to be political and driven by social media or by popular opinion or by the media. I mean, these are not things that should be really influencing public health policy, is recognizing that COVID is here to stay. 
Our goal is not to get rid of COVID. Our goal is to minimize severe disease, hospitalization, and death. If that is our goal, then we focus on those who are most likely to land in hospital. We ensure that we've targeted the areas where we have low vaccination rates of vulnerable adults. It's a very different focus, but without an endpoint, like what is our endpoint? We're highly vaccinated, but people are still not congregating. We still have mask mandates. We still have physical distancing requirements. And I'm not saying necessarily that they're all wrong, but this is in Ontario and parts of Canada, whereas if you go to jurisdictions in Europe, they said, okay, we're at 80% vaccination. We're, this is now we're going to coexist. We have Scandinavian countries that never put in some of these mandates and are now have reached that equilibrium. So that part of that honest conversation is we are going to have to coexist with this. It is not dangerous to young people, thank heavens. It is dangerous to older people. This is where our focus is. But that's a personal, that's where I would, I would, I would like to have seen those conversations happen. Uh, Dr. Watley, last word to you on that, on moving the goalposts. Yeah, I would love to talk about surge, but I won't. I, I think my final comment would be a call for good government. And I know that sounds so weak and lame and it's old, it's an old term, but so politicizing a pandemic by using experts and saying, okay, put them behind a microphone. Okay, we'll just jump to whatever direction they tell us. That's not good governance. That's not good government. That's not good leadership. We need leaders who will balance the ethical, the technological, the legal, scientific, and the public policy aspects and look at them as a whole. That is their job. They cannot abrogate their mandate to look after society to the experts because you can't blame the experts. You put a public health doc behind a microphone, they're going to give you public health advice. And and same with any kind of physician, ID, family practice, eMERGE, whatever. And so we need people who can draw on the expertise of these various expert voices, but not give them a mandate to run society. Because when they do, I mean, if you ask me what I should do about your cholesterol, I will tell you to, you know, eat rabbit food and do a thousand sit-ups a day until your cholesterol is as low as possible. Well, that's not reality. And so we need to get back to reality, have politicians actually do their job in government, which will include some risk. The public may say, you know what, I hate what you're doing because I'm scared of COVID. Well, that's the job of a politician. You can't abrogate your job to a small group of experts behind a podium and then try to create policy off that. So I think there's an even bigger job for government to get back and try to remember what it means to do good government. Thank you very much for that fascinating discussion with both of you. And I want to thank you both, Dr. Sean Watley and Dr. Martha Fulford for joining us today. This is the in-house podcast of the McDonald-Laurie Institute, Podblast Canada, and we'll catch you all in the next episode.